You know, God's Word speaks to our lives every time we open this book, every time we gather in this place. And we need to listen to how God is speaking to us. And then when He does, identify a specific area in my life that needs change. I need to take a step in that direction. Not perfectly, but progressively. Welcome to the Gospel Chapel podcast, where every week we're posting the audio of the messages from the past Sundays. Uh, My name is Doug Dunbar, and I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you found us. Today we're in Daniel chapter 5, and Daniel chapter 5 is the story of Belshazzar, the writing on the wall, very common, very cliche uh, statement. Um, But Belshazzar hears from God. Now what's he going to do with that? He hears a clear word from God. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, says this, I think a new world will arise out of the religious mists when we approach our Bible with the idea that it is not only a book which was once spoken, but a book which is now speaking. A lot of truth to that if we would just approach the Bible as God's word to us, that he is continuing to speak to us how our lives could change. And that's the challenge of this message really is that when we hear the word of God, we need to respond to the word of God. If you'd like to find out more about Gospel Chapel, you can visit our website, www.gospelchapelgf.com. There you'll find out lots of information about us. And also there's a form there that you can submit a prayer request to us. If there's a way that we can pray for you, uh, fill that out and we'll be praying for you. And uh, we pray that, you know, even right now, you're encouraged in God's word as you're seeking him. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 5 today. So if you want to take your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 5. Have you ever been in a situation or season in life where you really needed God to provide you with clear direction? Like if there could just be an audible voice from heaven or something like that, you would just go, oh, thank you for making it plain. (laughs) Directly to your situation. Perhaps it's right now. Perhaps you're in that season right now and you're desperately wanting a clear word from the Lord. There's a catch though of course, to such a desire for a clear word from God. Because you need to commit to fully walk in obedience to the direction of God's word first. And how are we doing with what he's already told us very clearly in his word? I remember one discussion I had with the first pastor I served under. uh, His name was Alan Price, and this was in Vancouver, I don't recall anything about the topic or why we were discussing this, but one statement that he made in that kind of staff meeting stuck with me, and this is like 26 years ago now. He said, he said this, imagine how different we would live if we as pastors were walking in complete obedience to just half of what we know from Scripture. That's still true today. Even more so, 26 years later after being a Bible college teacher and a preacher, having the privilege of studying and teaching the Bible for over half my life now, I'm more aware of my weaknesses and my failures and my basic inability to practice what I preach. 
You see, God's word revealed in scripture is already so vast and so deep and so immeasurably sufficient that if we could apply, I think, I think if we could just apply one thing we learn a month from maybe a Sunday sermon or a podcast we listen to and live it consistently so it becomes part of how we just function in day-to-day life, I'm willing to bet things might change in our lives. You see, most of us don't have a knowledge of God or a knowledge of his will problem. We probably know more than we realize and we struggle to live out that which we do know. I know I do. And at the root of this, there's something really sinful, and it's simple, maybe sinful too, it's painful to admit. And that is that I want to know the direct will of God for my life in the situation I'm facing so that I can choose whether or not I'll do it. I think that's the problem at, at, at the root of it all, right? I'm asking God to show me his will so that I can decide whether it's right or not. And we wouldn't say it like that, but that's kind of how we approach the will of God sometimes, right? This is what God says. Well, I don't know. That might be hard. That might cost a lot. Let me get back to you on that. And that's not how it works. You see, when God reveals his will and his word, he isn't looking for a vote of confidence. He doesn't submit it to a committee for approval. God reveals his will and just simply expects obedience. End of Sentence, end of story. The writing's on the wall. What does that cliche usually mean? We've we've all heard it, right? The writing's on the wall. What does it usually tell us? Something bad's coming. coming. (laughs) The writing's on the wall. It's like we hear this all the time, right? You know, oh man, this, you know, thing in the job, writing's on the wall, it means, you know, probably moving on or something's coming. It, it comes out of Daniel, this, this phrase that we hear all over the place, this cliche, I know it's well known, we hear it, and usually it means time's up, a major change is coming, a day of reckoning, the end is near. It's a cliche that comes straight out of Daniel chapter 5 where the finger of God writes on the wall. If we don't know, <laughs> some people, if they don't know anything about the Bible, they kind of know two things. The writing's on the wall and love your neighbor as yourself, kind of the golden rule, right? Those are kind of the two key things. Again, the king of Babylon is faced with a mystery. And again, Daniel is the only one who can understand it and provide an interpretation The writings on the wall, the end of the Babylonian kingdom is coming. And we're only in Daniel chapter 5. So in many ways, we went from Daniel chapter 1 last week, where Daniel was about 14 years old, and by Daniel chapter 5, he's probably in his 60s. We're a good 40 to 50 years ahead in the time frame. So I'm going to read just from Daniel chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 to 8 and then skip down to verse 22. So let's stand together as we hear the word of the Lord. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought 
and that the kings and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And then they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the finger of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. The king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. His knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Over to verse 22, it's a fairly long chapter. And just kind of the in-between, they're, they're wondering, and the, the, the queen mother, probably Belshazzar's mother, actually, because he was second in command. His dad actually was the king. He was just in charge while his dad was away. We won't get into the whole history thing behind this. Verse 22. Daniel is speaking, and he says, And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, all of the Nebuchadnezzar's history. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of this house have been brought in before you, and your lords, your wives, and your concubines, and have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing is what was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mini, Mini, Tekel, Peresin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mini, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed in purple and a chain of gold was put around his neck and proclamation made about him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. That very night Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. And this is the word of the Lord. So we're going to move rather quickly through this passage and make just a few observations, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's table in response to this. The three points we're going to explore briefly are, the Lord confronts those who profane what is holy. The Lord confronts those who profane who is holy, uh, profane what is holy. The Lord rebukes those who exalt themselves instead of him. And the Lord judges those who are found deficient. So the Lord confronts, the Lord rebukes, and the Lord judges. So the story starts out with a party. Belshazzar's having this great big feast, 1,000 people in attendance. 
which is actually a pretty standard thing for a king of Babylon to do. It's a show of confidence. It's a show of prosperity. It's a show of control as the king. Now, how aware Belshazzar and his guests were of the approaching armies of the Medes, the text is silent. It seems that they're clueless, blissfully unaware that a major shift in world power is about to take place. They're celebrating their greatness, perhaps with a belief that their political, military, and economic control of the world is untouchable. Nobody can touch us. And in their arrogance, they bring the vessels of the temple to, that, that from the temple of Israel to be used as common objects. And these vessels were set-apart objects in the temple, holy for the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem, but and set apart only for the priesthood to use. Now it's interesting, the text says, these are the, these are the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar brought, that he took, that he brought to Babylon. But go back to chapter one, how did they get there? God gave, right? God gave this into their hands. And so already he's ignoring, the story's telling us that he's ignoring the situation, believing in Babylon's own power to make this happen. Verses three to four, these vessels are brought in, they're used, and not just to drink from, but to proceed and then be used in the context of praising the gods of Babylon, the ultimate desecration. Now, in context of the ancient Near East, conquerors believed that their gods were superior to those of people they had defeated and subjugated. That's how things were understood in the ancient Near East. Conquering a people was not simply a matter of military superiority, it was theological through and through. If we win, our gods have conquered your gods or God. End of story. They didn't have a theological category for a defeated people's God still holding power and sway over everything. In the face of this desecration, Yahweh's response is immediate. Immediately the hand appears. And the detail in this text right behind the candelabra, like right, made such an impression that they knew exactly where it was. The writings on the wall. And Belshazzar panics. All of our translations love to clean this up a little bit. It basically means he lost control of the lower part of his body. Yeah, you already filled in the gap there, didn't you? I mean, we put, you know, his knees knocked together. Well, you know, there was more things happening down there than that. Most commentators will say, yeah, he lost control of his lower body. He pooped his pants. He's freaking out. He's scared to death. Just imagine being at a party with a thousand people. You're enjoying being in the center of attention. You're provided for this party. You're in control of everything. And suddenly a disembodied hand appears and scrolls something on the wall. Little scary, right? Little freaky. And here's a man who thinks he's got it all together and he is untouchable. And he is undone in a moment by the hand of God. God is confronting his pride and his arrogance and his self-reliance. He has crossed a serious line with God and it's going to cost him. So God confronts those who profane what is holy. Secondly, the Lord rebukes those who exalt themselves instead of him. We skip ahead here. There's really too many details to cover. Daniel's called in. And he knows the words that are on that wall. Apparently, they're actually pretty normal words, but what do they mean? 
Daniel's interpretation is more important than, the, than looking up the words in a dictionary. First, Daniel tells Belshazzar a bit of history. His predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, if you go back to chapter four, he exalted himself, and what did God do? You're gonna go nuts, and you're gonna be out in the field, eating grass, naked for a whole year. Great, so the king of Babylon was out in the field, eating grass, living like one of the cattle. And then he comes back to his senses and he repents and he humbles himself and he lays it all down and he chooses to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. The first thing Daniel does is he gives him this history, tells him what Nebuchadnezzar, when he was confronted, how he responded. And then Daniel says, and you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. You knew it. You saw how God works, and you learned nothing from it. You've had every opportunity to learn from the mistakes of those who came before you, but you didn't listen, and you didn't walk in humility. So in taking these vessels from the treasury, you have made a big mistake. Belshazzar, your life and breath are in the hands of the living God of Israel. Your arrogance and pride don't change that reality one bit. Like it or not, recognize it or not, God is in control. And remember, that's the whole message of Daniel, that he wants the readers of this book to get, to understand God is in control of who is in control. Whether it's Babylon or Media or Persia or Greece or Rome, God is always in control of who is in control. Whatever situation you're facing, whatever country, whatever country you live in, whatever regime you find yourself under, God is always in control. Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. God raises them up and God brings them down. But how those authorities carry that authority in relation to God determines their destiny. Belshazzar ignored God in his holiness and viewed himself above God. You have exalted yourself above him. And the Lord rebukes that. John Goldingay in his commentary says this, Daniel makes Belshazzar the subject of a series of strong verbs. You knew, you ignored, you exalted yourself, you desecrated, you committed idolatry, you disregarded. Daniel emphasizes Belshazzar's responsibility for his attitudes and actions. The vessels that should have reminded him of the God who gave them into Nebuchadnezzar's power, back to chapter one, becomes the means of his self-indulgence. It makes him grotesquely idolatrous and worshiping senseless objects and ignoring the God who has power over his destiny. He fails to take God seriously like his father, but with less excuse because his father's story has made clear to him that God has this power. So the writing's on the wall. Time's up. And before the night was over, it was finished. The Lord confronts those who profane what is holy. The Lord rebukes those who exalt themselves over him. And thirdly, the Lord judges those who are found deficient. Quite literally, this could read two pounds a shekel and a half. Two bucks and a quarter. It's all you're worth, buddy. 
It's kind of literally, they're, 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 there's nouns here. These are just nouns. But Daniel gives a verbal sense to the explanation. You know, imagine seeing that on your wall, two bucks and change. Of course, you're looking for an explanation. This isn't like a blue light special at Zeller's. That shows you how old I am. But it's coming back. Apparently, they're bringing it back. As with other riddles, Daniel provides an interpretation that relates directly to the situation at hand. This message, Belshazzar, spells the end of the reign of Babylon. And I don't think we're to look beyond this fulfilled, being fulfilled at the end of the chapter. This is a message specifically for that moment and, that, and for Belshazzar as a person and as a king. God doesn't expect repeat this formula ever in Scripture. It's very specific. So what do we do with this? What principle applies here? I think it's simply this. God is the righteous judge who counts our days, weighs our lives, and finds us wanting. The writing's on the wall for every person. Romans chapter 1, 18 to 20, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they without excuse. Belshazzar, you had no excuse. You knew your history from previous king. You knew it, but you ignored it. Paul says in Romans, we all know the power, the majesty, and the glory of God shown in creation. None of us has an excuse. And we can multiply verses that support this, but the bottom line is, is that when our lives are measured against the holiness and the righteousness of God, we will be found deficient. We will therefore face judgment for the wages of sin is death and the writings on the wall, the justice of God against sin. What was Belshazzar's response to this revelation? He had a very specific word from God. He now understood the message from God. And what does he do? Wow, that was great, Daniel. Here's a robe. Here's gold coin. Third in command. And he does nothing about his own heart. No hint of repentance. No hint of taking the message to heart. Nothing changed. Great message, pastor. You're doing a good job. Keep it up. Little or no life change. I've been in ministry for 26 years now, and I hate to say it, but I understand Daniel's position all too well. Lots of people want to understand the Word of God, but few want to align their lives with it. Hey, I get it. I have the same problem. Call it an occupational hazard. Knowing more about the Bible than I can live Obedience always trails our understanding. We have to know God's word. We have to study. We have to know what he said, of course. We have to have an understanding of the text. I'm not saying that's not important. It's just not the end of the process. 
And I get it too, there's only so much you can take in every week, being called to action or application every week in new ways, depending on the text that we're studying. It feels overwhelming because it really is. And I know that not every message is going to apply to everyone in the room, and there may be days where there isn't an application for you, but there may be for someone else. Honestly, if there's just a handful of steps that you take in the course of a year, like one or two, and consistently learn them and walk in them, that's progress. And I know I have to cut myself some slack too, because getting up here every week and digging into these passages and seeing where the text speaks to me today and my context and my life, it's a bit daunting and overwhelming. You know, I've had to come to accept that if I don't suffer from a bit of imposter syndrome, I'm probably not teaching the Word of God all that well. It has to outstrip my ability to live it. If you ever think that your pastors are living everything they preach, you haven't really gotten to know us, you haven't seen us in the toy aisle with our kids during Christmas. You know, God's Word speaks to our lives every time we open this book, every time we gather in this place. And we need to listen to how God is speaking to us. And then when He does, identify a specific area in my life that needs change, I need to take a step in that direction. Not perfectly, but progressively. Not arrogantly and prideful, but humbly stumbling toward Jesus. And I think maybe that would be a better mission statement for us than helping people follow Jesus. It might be better if we just were humbly stumbling toward Jesus together. See, that's pretty much all I can do. I think we'd get further if we didn't feel that we had to have it all together to fulfill our mission of helping other people follow Jesus. What if I just stumbled along and we did it together? If you and I can move one broken foot, one bleeding knee, one scarred heart, just a little bit closer to the cross of Christ so we can find healing and wholeness where we're lacking. Maybe if we limp together, we can help each other get there. When God speaks, he confronts us When the Lord speaks, he rebukes us. And when the Lord speaks, he judges us. How do we respond? Belshazzar learned the hard way that putting himself forward and being arrogant and boastful and exalting himself above God would end in judgment. He profaned the holiness of God. As we come to this table today, this morning, it's not adorned with gold and silver, and these aren't sacred vessels in the temple, but the meaning of this moment is sacred and it's holy. Don't approach this table or take these elements in your hands unless you understand the holiness of this moment and the meaning of these symbols. The simple juice represents the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for our sins, for my sin, for your sin. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins, none. That's God's word. Clear, 
Not church tradition, not something made up to create an exclusive club. This is how God has ordered things. You don't have to like it. You don't even have to believe it. It doesn't make it less true or change God's word any more than Daniel's explanation of the writing on the wall changed what was about to happen to Belshazzar. God's word reveals this truth and it's not up for debate. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Without the cross of Christ, there's no hope and no life. The bread, or in our case, the corn checks, came out of a cereal box. You could have had a whole bowl of this for breakfast, so it's nothing but cereal, but in this moment, in this context, it represents the broken body of Christ. In this moment, it is set apart as a sacred symbolic reminder for us that the wages of sin is death. The lines and the holes in this remind us of the scourging and the whipping and the ripping of the flesh of Christ, muscle from bone left shredded and ragged and bleeding. And the audible crunch reminds us dimly of the nails driven through his flesh into the wood. This table reminds us that without the death of Christ, we would be dead in our trespasses and sins. This table reminds us also that the death of Christ is where we find life. John 6.51, Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then he said a few verses later in John chapter six, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Knowing that doesn't save us, surrendering our lives to this truth does. See, Belshazzar knew the words of God. He knew the meaning of the writing on the wall, but he didn't surrender his pride. He didn't repent. He didn't worship and bow down before God. He did not declare as Nebuchadnezzar had done before him. All the Lord's works are right. All his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The end of chapter four of Daniel. When Jesus declared the need for accepting the reality that his life, his body, and his blood were necessary for anyone to experience eternal life, he spoke and he explained his words clearly. And thousands of people left. He fed 5,000 and then he gave this message, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everyone left except the 12. And Jesus asked them, are you going to leave too? And Peter's answer was this, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. No matter how difficult and radical and bizarre this declaration that Jesus just made was, Peter said, we can't go anywhere else. 
That's the response needed at this table. You have nowhere else to go. Your broken life will never be healed and made whole by trying harder, being busier, serving more, or anything else. Your only hope is to come to Jesus in desperate hope because there's nothing else. Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. Believe that and experience this table anew today. There's two realities we must remember when we come to this table. First, apart from Christ and his saving work on the cross, we are all slaves of our sin nature. We are by nature sinful, set against God in his holiness. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We have no ability to live or respond to God in any way that merits his favor. We are lost, we are helpless, we are hopeless, unable to hear God's voice, unable to discern his message. We're looking at the writing on the wall, but we have no comprehension of what it's about. Apart from Christ, we are dead and dying. And this reality calls us to humility and repentance and sorrow, fully admitting our darkness and despair and our need for a savior. The second reality we need to remember that in Christ, having surrendered our lives to him, we are made alive by his spirit, that God made us alive in Christ's birth, birth, and he birthed faith in our hearts so that we can respond to him in humility and reverence and repentance. And when we surrender to Jesus Christ, confessing our sins and our sinful nature and surrendering our minds, our wills, our emotions and our pains to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, he begins to restore us. He adopts us as his children, as co-heirs with Christ, empowered by his Holy Spirit to live in freedom and joy in his presence every day, even when life is hard and the way is dark. In Christ, we are no longer condemned and we are celebrated as the lost sheep found, the lost coin returned, and the lost son come home at last. In Christ, we find joy and freedom and hope and light. This reality calls us also to humility and repentance, but to joy unspeakable and full of glory, fully embracing our identity as sons and daughters of the Creator. The first reality is for everyone at all times, who have never surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Never embraced the truth that when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. He meant it. It wasn't a code. It was a bold, unquestionable truth. The second reality is true only for those who have surrendered their lives to the Lordship of Christ, who stand before him in humility and worship because they know how much they need him and how much they continue to need him to face the challenges of life today. Whether you need to surrender to Christ today for the first time in your life, or if God is calling you to deepen your surrender to him as one who is seeking to live for him, I ask that we would bow our heads. I'll ask those who are going to help serve to come forward. We're not going to have any music today. We're just going to have a time of silent reflection on what we've heard today from God's Word.
And as we're bowing our heads and thinking about this, pray this hymn with me today, old hymn. As we come to this table in humility and repentance, sorrow and joy and desperation and hope. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. I need thee every hour, in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide, or life is vain. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. I need thee every hour, most holy one. O make me thine indeed, thou blessed Son. I need thee. O I need thee. Every hour I need thee. O bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. Lord, as we take the bread as we reflect on what you have done for us. Help us to surrender to you anew. In Jesus' name, amen.